0: And fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people.
2: Except for the rats. <laughs> Friggin' rats, man. Just coming out of the woodwork. I was trying to think of a good way to intro this one. in there's... i would got to talk about... Strap like in rats. people. Because there's a lot of just disparate shit that we're gonna be talking about uh welcome back guys it's uh barstool politics i am your host nick mcguire joined as always by dr bill muck from north central college and dr phil barker from Keene state college is back i good to see you phil good to see you it's good to be back yeah and then we have uh, our senior legal analyst professor tom Cavanaugh, with us as well hi tom
1: always great to be here Yay. yeah good to see it's great to be here
2: Uh, Before we get started, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Politics, Facebook at Barstool Paul. No other way around. Twitter is Barstool Paul. Correct. Facebook is Barstool Politics. See, I know these things. Uh, The podcast, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. So share us, review us, like us through those things. Um, beer suggest or not beer suggestions, beers that we try. You can find on Untapped that you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, we are just Barstool Politics, so check out our reviews of everything that we try on there. Uh, and then Predict It, uh, who we've partnered with uh, for the past several months now. Predict It is a, a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics. where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Super fun, super informative. Um, definitely check it out. We always do. Uh, what's great for our listeners is uh, if you open up a new account, you will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, you will um, it will match that $20. So $40 to use on predicted. Lots so do of you
1: fun. boys make your portfolios on predicted available so that we could really see how smart you all are? <laughs> Who's making money on Predicted in this room? Is I I'm don't wondering.
2: specifically
3: for that reason. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm up a little bit. I've had a good run. Nick
1: is down. Right. Yeah. up a little yes. bit and feels and suspiciously quiet over there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I
4: lost my life <laughs> <laughs> Um,
2: But yeah, check it out. Uh, like I said, we have this uh, promo uh, going on. So uh, just use our promotional link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Um, and get some free money to try out on there. Thank you, Predict It. Yes. So much fun. Um, We have Tom here. We're going to look at some legal cases. Supreme Court time.
3: So while we've all been enjoying the holiday season, the Supreme Court has been hard at work selecting its cases for the year. And that makes it the most wonderful time of the year when (laughs) Professor Tom Kavanaugh highlights some of the most interesting and potentially consequential uh, Supreme Court cases for the year. Time it looks like it's going to be some pretty, or the court's going to be tackling some pretty fascinating issues. For instance, does the existence of a giant cross at a World War I memorial located on public property constitute the establishment of religion in violation of the First Amendment? No, just tacky. <laughs> does the government have the power to impose any fine on an individual, no matter how outrageous? But arguably, the biggest case is Kaiser versus Wilkie, which gets at the very heart of executive branch power and potentially could deal a dramatic blow to the growth of the imperial presidency. Tom, walk us all through this. Where where do you want to start?
1: Four big cases. We'll talk about three today, but I'll tease one of them. But first, I would just like to say that it appears as though my appearances on this podcast have yielded positive results because, are you ready, law school admissions are way up. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. As everybody who listens to me knows, I think there's only two kinds of people on earth, those who went to law school and those who wish they did. (laughs) And it turns out that that former category is growing, growing. while the latter category is diminishing. Anyway, uh, two things before I mention the case uh, that I'll, or one thing, and then I'll tease a case, and then we'll go to uh, a really interesting double jeopardy case. The first is to mention a case the court didn't take, Mm -hmm. and it is arguably uh, one of the most interesting things they've done this term. The case is Gee uh, or G, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, G-E-E versus Planned Parenthood. Uh, this involves the question of whether or not there is uh, the availability of a lawsuit to uh, get Planned Parenthood funding back when Planned Parenthood is defunded. Um, and I note it because uh, there were three who very much wanted to hear the case. Uh, those are the conservative justices. Um, and it turns out that they could not get to a fourth vote because Justices Roberts, and get ready for it, Kavanaugh, uh, would not go along with the CERT petition. What? Interesting. So for all the worry that, and, and I don't mean to say unjustifiable worry, but it, uh, it, it turns out at least that in his first shot at voting to grant CERT in an abortion-related case, he votes with the three uh, liberal justices and Roberts to not take the case. So it was worth noting that before we move to uh, just real quick, any yeah, any
3: please. any speculation why that might be the case. I mean, of course, we can't get in their heads, but is there, are people speculating what the causal factor might be? So Everyone was wrong. Well, uh, <laughs>
1: the, there was a first of all, it is rare to have writing about uh, cert decisions, but the three dissenters wrote a stinging. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Thomas uh, essentially said they're abdicating the duties the courts uh, are, are given, and. Um, those who did not vote, uh, or I should say the, the, the ones who didn't want to grant cert, didn't write anything about why they didn't. That's very rare for them to do. Uh, but there's there was clearly some animosity about this case, and I suspect that Thomas uh, and Alito for sure thought Kavanaugh was going to be an easy fourth yeah. vote to grant cert. You only need four of the sure. five, uh, four of the nine, not five. Um, I, my speculation, I, I, you hate to rush immediately to, he's aware of the politics of his Uh, appointment process but um, the case itself isn't directly about abortion, it's about funding and uh, you know it's not impossible to imagine that what Kavanaugh and Roberts say to themselves is here's a place to show objectivity, a place to show um, reflective judgment and that sort of thing and if it's not the big ticket issue that maybe Kavanaugh wants, I I think I've said before I don't think Roberts wants the big ticket issue why not do that? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Good restraint. Yeah. Judicial restraint. Judicial <laughs> restraint. Uh, so uh, let me just tease a case we'll take up the next time I'm here. Uh, and it involves a, a process called civil forfeiture, uh, which is essentially government taking uh, private property that may or may not be directly related to a crime, but using a civil standard to get it, a preponderance of the evidence. And I'll just ask a question Justice Breyer asked, and then I'm going to move to double jeopardy. <laughs> Justice Breyer asked uh, the Indiana uh, attorney, Indiana is the state from which the court uh, the case comes, would it be appropriate for government to seize, sell and keep the proceeds from a car if a person driving it went 5 miles an hour over the speed limit? Answer from the attorney from Indiana? Yes. So I'll mm-hmm. let that soak in. You can think that through. And the next time I'm here, you know, in a, in a month or so we can talk about uh the case it's Tim's, T I M B S. Uh, a really good one. Yeah, Tom, like Can, over can I uh,
4: ask a question real quick? Who's, yeah. a, who's bringing that case? So it's bring being brought against Indiana?
1: Yeah, it, Tim's Tim's it, is it, it, under the Eighth you know Amendment, the
4: like what happened? What obviously he was the victim of civil of, of this forfeiture. Yeah. But do you know what background yeah. was? What happened?
1: Uh, drug case took his car, and uh, his uh, position is that the uh, amount of property seized is vastly inequitable uh, relative to the amount, or I should say, the severity of the crime. The real issue in civil forfeiture that people could think about before we uh, talk it through at great length is: is it appropriate to use a civil standard of proof, beyond, you know, preponderance of the evidence? Uh, in a case that involves crimes and the taking of property. So he's invoking the Eighth Amendment and taking the position that this is essentially an excessive fine under the Eighth. But what he's really after is to give the court a chance to say civil forfeiture as an industry. And it really is that in police departments is wrong.
4: It's virtually impossible to get the get stuff back once it's been seized, right? <clears throat> Correct. Even, like, even if you've been, even if you're found not guilty of, the, of a crime, you're you're out of luck. You're out of luck. Mm, yeah, that's a so good it'll be a tease. great Eighth Amendment mm-hmm. conversation next yeah. time.
1: So three cases today, one on double jeopardy, one on the Establishment Clause, and one on the administrative state. Uh, why don't we start with double jeopardy, because I think you'll see an instant, uh, instant connection to some of the politics we've talked about recently. The case name is Gamble. This is a guy who was charged with uh, drug and gun crimes at the state and federal level. He pleads at the state level uh, and is sentenced on the basis of a plea agreement. Immediately thereafter, he moves to have the federal charges dismissed on the grounds that having already uh, adjudicated the state claim, uh, to do so again for the same crime and essentially the same charges, and I'll explain that in a minute, violates his Fifth Amendment protections uh, against double jeopardy. The federal government says, well, we're going ahead with the federal prosecution anyway. And they do so based on a thing called the dual sovereigns doctrine. And the idea there, it's one, uh, or separate sovereign's doctrine, uh, that you might recall from the Rodney King case, where the police officers that uh, did that beating were acquitted at the state level and then tried again at the federal level. What's interesting is that in the Rodney King case, uh, they were charged with a different thing. So it wasn't battery. It was violating his civil rights, if you, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Same activity, different charge. Here, same activity, same charge. So his argument is that the Fifth Amendment ought to prevent this. Now, there's some long-standing case law that suggests that this separate sovereigns uh, doctrine is a totally appropriate one, and uh, we can come to a couple of the political uh, ramifications of this, but there's a really interesting legal question here. Do we honor precedent, and if we do, the separate sovereigns doctrine stays and he can be prosecuted for the same thing by two different governments? Or do you honor what is obvious and plain about the Fifth Amendment, which says nothing about separate sovereigns and simply says you can't be put in jeopardy twice for the same crime? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the background. I'll just tie it to one political thing we've talked about and and then throw it to all of you to talk it through. Um, Imagine Paul Manafort is pardoned, and then the state of New York charges him with a crime. The separate sovereigns doctrine allows that. If the Supreme Court rules that the separate sovereign's doctrine violates the Fifth Amendment, that wouldn't be possible, and the pardon would essentially eliminate the possibility of the state prosecution as well.
2: As long as it's the same crime. Same crime, correct. Mm -hmm.
3: This is something that's getting real conversation, right? Mm Because I've heard, I've listened to some podcasts where they talk about if if the Department of Justice says we're not going to go after Trump because you can't indict a sitting president, let's think about state crimes. Or, or if the pardons mm-hmm. out there, this is a real mm-hmm. a real issue. It's a real issue, yeah. yeah. And it's so complicated because there's, Truth. I can think about instances where I would say, well, I want to get that guy, so let's get him at the state level. Mm-hmm. But if you step back to the 30,000 foot view, mm-hmm. I don't know but if I feel comfortable th- with that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, on, on the principle of it, the idea of you shouldn't be tried twice makes yeah. a lot of sense. But I also understand the argument that a crime at the federal level and a crime at the state level are technically different crimes, right? You're violating. But what if it's the same crime? <laughs> it, but you're but you're violating two separate laws, right? Mm-hmm. When you do that, I, so I, I also I think about the the I also I think about the. Uh, there's there would have to be all sorts of coordination right because you also have an issue here with the fact that if you have a bunch of yahoos at the state level who screw up a a case Mm -hmm. then the feds have lost their chance to actually try oh yeah um and so you've got issues there as well which would require all you know coordination or theoretically some federal yahoos who screw it up and ruin it for the the states yeah Yeah. yes it could go the other way around
1: as well Yeah. yeah Uh, you just articulated in almost exactly the same words the Supreme Court used more than 100 years ago uh, to create this I'm doctrine. very, very smart. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that
1: it's separate laws. Now, uh, uh, that's sophistry to a lot of people, right? When you charge a person with a gun violation or a drug violation, it's angels dancing on the head of a, uh, head of a pin to say... A gun charge at the federal level is different than a gun charge at the state level for the very same gun and the very same conduct relative to that gun, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the argument for this separate sovereign doctrine. It's one thing to charge Rodney King's beaters uh, or or batterers with violating his civil rights when he'd already been acquitted on on the aggravated battery charges. These are the exact same crimes other than that they are at different levels involving the exact same set of facts.
4: So let me let me play devil a little bit of devil's advocate because I I come at this from a a, you know, I think about this from a comparative perspective or an international Mm -hmm. perspective. And so the separate sovereigns aspect makes a lot of sense there. So if you know, if if Bill is a French citizen and I murder him on the high seas, (laughs) Mm -hmm. then I can be tried Uh in the U.S. And if I'm acquitted, France can still try to extradite me and try me there because it's there's two separate sovereign entities. So Mm -hmm. I'm not protected from from. Uh, prosecution somewhere outside of the US just because mm-hmm. I was found innocent or, or not guilty in the US.
0: Yeah, so if you take right. that
4: idea and apply it to, I mean, it makes sense in that context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you apply it to the US, we have this, uh, this, this seems like a, you, you want your, you, you gotta, you can't have your cake and eat it mm-hmm. too. There's lots right. of people who want state rights and want these different levels of government and this uh, separate sovereignty aspect. But if you take that, then you have to, with those different levels of government beca- comes this aspect of separate sovereignties, mm-hmm. which means that yeah. you, know, you have the right to be tried in you know, Texas or wherever, and you uh-huh. also have the right to be... or not the right. The, the state has the right to try you in, in Texas, and the, the federal state has the right to try you at, at the national level. I, it's, it's federalism with a capital
3: F. Yeah. yeah. And so let's say for the same exact crime, if, 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 there were, if the court were to say you can't this is double jeopardy you can't do that would it have to say who gets precedent then i mean to right. think about does the does st- it this, matter what order it happens does the federal at that government point? always win in those instances or does the state win and it, what is the constitution how do they weigh how does it weigh in yeah, on that yeah it's a
1: great question i suspect that the answer is that they will not say that uh, it would be dicta i think what they'd say is the 5th amendment if they say this and i don't think they're going to I, it, it appeared from the oral arguments that they Largely, think the separate sovereigns doctrine makes sense. Um, if they don't, and let's say a, a, a group of five decides to do away with it, I suspect that going further than simply saying separate sovereigns doctrine violates the Fifth Amendment uh, is something they won't do. Sure. In which case, it's first to charge, and maybe even first to try. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, nothing stops both from from charging. Uh, what you're prevented from doing is trying Mm -hmm. somebody again. And this would be true whether you're convicted in the first uh, case or not. Right. right? So theoretically, the other thing's true. You've already been sentenced, and let's say it's 10 years in prison, now the federal government wants a bite out of the apple to get you the death penalty.
2: Well, all right, I have have zero background in this, and I'm not gonna do well in this conversation. (laughs) But I I mean, the, the thought that I have is, if it's the exact same crime and you're convicted on the federal level, but then there's another trial at the state level, the federal level finds you guilty and the state finds you innocent, how does that work in that situation? Why, I, I, it doesn't easy, seem easy. You go to federal prison. <laughs> right? It just doesn't. I mean, if it's the exact same crime, realistically, the evidence should be the same at that point. Should mm-hmm. it not? Well, but, but in theory, it's not the same crime, right? That's the weird part about it. Well,
1: that's the weird part. And, and let's go it's on to a- say the evidence might not be the same. The federal rules of evidence mm-hmm. are different than the state rules of evidence. Okay, fair enough. Judges might admit things in one uh, case that they didn't in another. Um, lawyers are better in some cases than they are in another. I, I, I know you said in a sort of joking way, the yahoo's at the state. but So forget whether it's state or federal. Lawyers blow cases. Mm. And, and one of the virtues of this uh, separate soc- sovereign's doctrine is it gives you another shot. If somebody blows the case or if a jury does what it did, let's say, in the Rodney King case, which was obviously jury nullification, you're looking at a video of what is almost unarguably aggravated battery. Uh, And the jury deliberates Hmm. relatively briefly and lets him go. Now, Bill, I can see sitting back and smiling and saying there's something pernicious about the idea that when a jury of your peers has spoken, another one's going to be impaneled to speak again sure. right until they get it right
3: because i was thinking about the but civil case right so if you let's say you get off and you if on a criminal case you don't go to jail you can get somebody for like o j for a civil at the oh, end yeah. but that's different right that's it's right. money right. it's not going to jail this mm-hmm. is we screwed up the first time let's try again to me this there's something it just doesn't for the exact same crime right if there are different laws at the federal versus the state i'm more comfortable with that mm-hmm. than the same exact crime
4: but I want to I want to argue that there are different crimes, though. You're so wrong, I was, Barker. I, I was convinced that I was I, I came into this thinking I'm you know double jeopardy. That's bad, and now I've sort of come around <laughs> to convince. So the thing you're talking about is that it's the same crime. It's not. It's it's multiple crimes that you have committed with a single action, right? So. I can shoot like I I, in driving down the road and crashing into a car. I can commit multiple crimes in that instance. Right. Like I could Mm -hmm. not be wearing my seatbelt. It could be, you know, I could be drunk. It could be vehicular manslaughter. Mm -hmm. It could be all sorts of stuff. I have broken multiple laws with one action if they if i had different trials for each of those crimes that i was committed you wouldn't you, you committed you wouldn't say that that's double jeopardy right, right. so th- these are multiple laws that you have broken some of them at the federal level some of them at the state level so it's not that you're being tried twice for the same crime, you're being tried twice for the same action that violated two different crimes. But if it's for not that wearing your seatbelt,
3: let's go with the seatbelt thing, like, alright, we're going to get you for not wearing your seatbelt at the state and the federal level, that doesn't seem fair to me. It strikes me as that you should pick one, right? Either, it, you know, that's, that, that feels like double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. If it's different, that, yeah, this is, I like this. Stuff. It's, it's
1: complicated. Yeah, But, but uh, you're standing on the street and you're holding a gun. On your right side is a state trooper. Sounds like a Wednesday. On your left side uh, is an ATF agent. They simultaneously arrest you, and they both charge you with unlicensed possession of a handgun. There are different laws in the sense that one is in the federal code and one is in the state code. I think I'd argue that they are not different crimes in the sense that it's a single act, same substance. Uh, everything about them is the same except that, uh, one is in the federal code and one's not.
0: Uh, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Now, Phil, yeah. You're,
1: you're exactly right. This is what yeah. the court has been saying all the way along, that, that if the federal government writes a law and the state government writes a law, they are different crimes when the same act violates them.
0: Yeah. I thought this I thought, was going to be the easy and that's case. Going to be the view that, <laughs> that's going to be the view that likely prevails.
4: <laughs> I go back to the, I know we're probably spending too long on this, and I'm arguing more strongly than I actually feel about this. But if, a, if you go with the separate sovereign thing, so if I, back to the I kill Bill and he's a French citizen, it's possible that I can, and I said if, if I get, if I'm acquitted in the U.S., I can still be charged in, in France. Mm-hmm. I can be charged and convicted in the U.S., and then when I finish my mm-hmm. term, they can deport me or they can extradite me to France to face murder charges. In France, where I serve a second sentence there as well, Manuel well, Noriega, so same, right? That was yeah, I, yeah. It's the mm-hmm. same idea in which I have, with one act, one crime, I have violated multiple laws—the laws, the laws mm-hmm. against murder in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the laws against murder in France—and mm-hmm. I can face now. Obviously, that is not covered by the constitutional protections against <laughs> right. a double jeopardy, right? Although, I mean, I guess it is. If, I, if you're a French citizen, you could argue—I mean, if you're an American citizen, you know, that's what Manuel Noriega didn't have, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, but, th- um, but that was the thing with Noriega.
3: I always felt that—I mean, he was a bad dude, but he got a lousy legal deal because basically the United States invades Panama, takes him back to the U.S. We hold him for a long time. When his crime is done here, I think we sent him to France— where they charged him with very similar crimes. And then I think they brought him back to, I can't remember if he made it back to Panama, but I always thought like, man, they're just hitting this guy up over and over and over again for the same crimes.
1: It could run the other direction. A terrorist gets away, Mm -hmm. is tried in their own country and acquitted. If you don't have a separate sovereign's doctrine, we can't bring them back here and try them here. So I'm not necessarily arguing against this, but it it, it is a fascinating thing to be this poor guy who thought uh, and probably didn't get good advice from his lawyer, if I plead out at the state level, I don't have to worry about the feds. turns out he's got to worry about both.
3: Okay, We, we should move on, but this one's really, yeah. interesting. It is really I, interesting. I really thought this would be like the quick one. <laughs> 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 Next case, Tom.
1: Cross on what is now public property, and it's interesting to say it that way. This is an Establishment Clause case. It involves a World War I memorial built in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Uh, it was built with private money. It was early maintained by private money and it was on private property. As the uh, universe grew up around it, roads uh, essentially surrounded it, so it sits now in uh, basically the median uh, of a highway. And so the state has taken over control and operation of this memorial. They did so saying that they, read it, uh, they needed to do, uh, they need to make this a safe place to drive and a 100-foot concrete cross in the middle of the street <laughs> is something that private people can't manage on their own. That sounds like Texas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, but I, it's an important distinction here, right, that it was built with private money. It was originally intended to be on private property, and it now subsequently is on uh, uh, state land. Um, the plaintiff here uh, is the American humanists. Uh, those arguing to protect uh, the cross are the American Legion. So you can decide <laughs> who you battle. think are the good guys and the bad guys <laughs> there. Uh, <laughs> entirely up to you. Um the Fourth Circuit uh, applied the uh, now, I think it's not unfair to call it, infamous lemon, te- lemon test um, and said the cross has to go. And they did Wait, so.
4: I'm gonna stop you, what's the lemon test?
1: Yeah, let me give you the lemon. It's a three-part test. And basically, let's start by saying that all nine of the sitting justices have at one point in their career or another said the lemon test is crazy. Uh, and most people think the lemon test is broken. and. The interesting thing about this case is less likely to be the result, because the cross is going to stay, and we can talk about why, uh, than whether the court produces a new test for measuring these Establishment Clause cases. So Lemon says uh, a thing is fine if it has a secular purpose, if it neither advances nor inhibits religion, and if it doesn't produce an excessive entanglement between the state and a church or a religion. So the argument that's probably going to preserve the cross is uh, it has a secular purpose, Mm -hmm. memorializing these World War uh, I dead. Uh, It doesn't advance or inhibit religion because there isn't any proselytizing that goes along with it. And it doesn't entangle the state in some inappropriate way uh, because the state's purpose in taking it over was to provide a safe way around it Not to own it and use it as a symbol of, uh, you know, a Christian government or something Mm -hmm. like that. Now the other side says, as you can imagine, uh, nothing better symbolizes Western Christianity than the Latin cross, and And a big one (laughs) and a big and a big one, and in fact one of the judges uh, on the Fourth Circuit said, well, we could solve this problem easily if you just cut the arms off because, because the names are on uh, the main trunk of the <laughs> cross. And top. if you want to memorialize those guys, cut the arms off, leave their names on the, the main trunk and everybody's fine. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether you think that's true or not. No. So what I do think you might be interested in thinking through for a minute together though is, what should the test be? Yeah. What Lemon has done is produced year after year after year after year uh, of cases inviting the court to say well this is excessive entanglement or this isn't or this is uh, a thing that advances religion or this isn't so what the American Legion said is let's get a new test and instead of asking in lemon those three questions why don't we simply ask is there a coercive element to the religious symbology that would suggest that government is pushing you toward belief Uh, the courts not actually said it's going to answer that question Um, But the American Legion's on to something. If Lemon's broken, why don't we fix it? Uh, Justice Breyer, uh, I'll just add one more thing and then sort of throw it out there. Um, In a Ten Commandments case, interestingly, one that preserved the Ten Commandments on a statehouse grounds said, listen, Lemon's not enough. Go through the Lemon analysis, but go back to history, context, culture, and behavior, and ask is there a difference between... Uh, the, church on the, or, uh, the cross on the front of a Baptist church where you might be proselytized and a cross like this one that is memorial in nature. So I think the cross is probably going to survive. That's what mm-hmm. it sounds like. The really interesting question is, will we get a new test? Oh,
3: this is interesting. Because I... it makes me think about in God we trust. I mean, so mm-hmm. I think you're right. The test, the current test is really messy. I don't know how you come up with
2: a better well, that's one. That's the thing. How would you ever come up with a test that doesn't or that there isn't a large, not even large, a segment of the population that doesn't find it coercive in some way. Yes. These any of these elements coercive? They're going to find a way to make it that, to fit their definition.
1: Well, you know, one way would be to say, let's, let's say you want to go down the coercion route. Uh, say that you don't have standing uh, to ask for the removal of a thing simply because you are an unwelcome or you've had an unwelcome look at it. In other words, just driving by a thing on the highway Uh, is entirely different than, let's say, government compelling you to read a particular textbook in school. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it seems to me you could enforce the coercive test in an easier way than you can the current one, which doesn't have any burden on, on government or, for that matter, on the plaintiff. To have standing, you simply have to say, I saw the thing, I think that's religious in nature, and I want it gone. So year after year after year, the courts adjudicating, not just the Supreme Court, but the lower courts, when does a nativity scene equal this? When does a Christmas tree equal this? Um, the coercion test paired with unwelcome viewing doesn't equal standing. Mm-hmm. Would radically reduce the number of cases that are. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you don't agree that that's a good mm-hmm. idea, but it would be a way of doing it.
4: Okay, I, I like the idea. When you first mentioned the idea of coerc- coercion, coercion—the difference between a you know a, a cross that's memorializing World War One vets or whatever and a textbook that you know proclaims Christianity is the one true religion, there's a pretty clear difference. But as I started thinking about it, trying to put your finger on what exactly is coercion, is hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because you were saying if, you know, something that you just drive by on the highway is one thing. Um, so if you're driving by a, a, a cross, you know, I, how coercive is that? But what if it weren't a cross? What if the U.S. government started putting up billboards that had Jesus on it, you know, with a speech bubble saying, you know, I am the one true God or whatever? That that seems it's drive by, you're just driving by it. It's just a symbol, but that seems way more coercive. So how is that? But, you know, I, I, the cross has become the symbol of that thing on the billboard, right? Of the Jesus with the speech bubble yeah. saying, I am the one true God. And so... Um, trying to figure out where it it makes sense to me that there's some things that are really obviously coercive and some that are pretty obviously not coercive, but trying to find that point in the middle. um, I guess that's why we have judges, but it's, it's but I I think that's even difficult.
3: I even, it gets us to intent because I can think of, I I think the world war one cross is, is not trying to push religion, right? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that's a memorial, but I think about when I went to visit you in Texas one time, Phil, we drove past Houston, had that ginormous, Cross that feels very different, same symbol, different intent right right so at some level you 're trying to figure out what is the intent of that religious symbol, mm-hmm. and is it you know so it 's not even the symbol itself is what are, what are they trying to do with that symbol
0: mm-hmm.
1: well in the in the billboard case, government spent the money to produce the thing mm-hmm, in right. this one they didn't mm-hmm. I know that doesn't answer all of, the, no, of that's the, right. the hypotheticals, but at least in that one you'd be able to say. The coercive element is the government expenditure of funds Mm -hmm. to advance an idea. Um, It it seems to me that that ought to be a part of the test, right, if it's government money. Remember a couple years ago, though, that uh, a a Catholic school applies to be part of a state program that was gonna put down soft blacktop in their parks, you know, that crushed Um, tire, uh, uh, right? So the original offer Was to any school that met certain, you know, some number of students and that sort of thing. Well, along comes the the Catholic school, and they're told, well, no, we can't do this. It's government going, or government money going to a religious school. Answer the lemon test solves that one too, on the grounds that there's a secular purpose, keeping kids from breaking their heads. Uh, It doesn't advance religion, arguably, it doesn't inhibit religion. And it's not excessive entanglement. But what people said there was, well, listen, if you don't spend the money on the park, maybe you spend it on another religion teacher. Right? Mm-hmm. So, again, the lemon mm. test, while it seems easy on its face, <sighs> what it means to advance religion isn't always so easy.
3: I hadn't thought about the teacher, right? Because mm. you're, oh, it's a fun one, Tom. Yeah, it's we a great it, case.
4: <laughs> <laughs> our, our system's you know, it. it it's what's in some ways beautiful about it, but it's also what's really difficult about it. You compare mm-hmm. us to, to France, right, where they have this very, they just <laughs> have established secularism, right? Like religion, mm-hmm. uh, as long as it's just, you know, basically no religion goes in the public sphere, unless it's mm-hmm. just a little Catholic. <laughs> um, and then... Un <laughs> poquito. <laughs> <laughs> uh, secular Catholicism <laughs> is okay. Uh, and then like Britain has a, has a, their approach has been in the past few years that, that, you know, talking about schools, like private schools can apply for public funds. And the idea is that... Every Everyone, right? The way they avoid this, like, view of a uh, favoritism is that you know we will give money to Anglican schools, but that also means that Jewish schools and Muslim schools and mm-hmm. all these other religions also have access to to this government money. So mm-hmm. if we were sort of all all in or all out, it would be way easier. It's this you know what, this kind of vague. We're not going to establish a religion, and what the hell does that mean? And if all the yeah. symbols tend to be Christian, that that suggests a
3: different element than if there was right. a diversity of symbols out there.
1: And it makes more difficult the application of the Breyer Rule. You know, Breyer says we shouldn't have a mechanical technical approach to this. We should look at history and culture. Mm -hmm. Well, if you do, you're going to find that history and culture at least in this country is uh, predominantly isn't even strong enough a word. Overwhelmingly Western Christian. So it's going to be a rare place where you find that there isn't uh, a long-term religious history associated with what might otherwise be a secular memorial or something like that. So it's hard to imagine how you'd lose right. a religion test like Breyer's.
3: Which The humanists won't that's like that. That's why the
1: coercion test might make sense. Yeah, right. So you're saying uh, I we agree. should just. We we're always going to have to define words, but I'm I'm thinking reasonable people can agree on coercion in ways that they might not agree on what advances religion.
2: Sure, that's but true. Anyway. Yeah. that's good. Let's just establish a religion and be done with it. We'll just make a new one up. We'll just make a new one up, and everybody What's will be wrong happy. Wrong theocracy. <laughs> yes. right? All right, Tom. Let's jump All to right, my favorite. All right, so the third favorite. case,
1: and we can, we probably can do this one a little bit more rapidly. But I just I I feel duty bound to to bring it up. I've tried this on two different people today, and when I say this has to do with administrative bureaucracy and interpretation of rules, uh, what mm-hmm. I got was dilated. That that's what I got. Oh, <laughs> but listen, this one really matters. Here's the case, and here's why it matters. Uh, the name of the case is Kaiser. Kaiser's a vet with PTSD. He applies to the VA for uh, benefits and he's denied. He's denied on the grounds that he didn't provide uh, relevant evidence related to his uh, illness and his claim. Relevant is a word that needs to be in quotation marks because it is a part of the VA regulations. Uh, He appeals uh, to the person who said no, there is no formal appeal mechanism to speak of here, and uh, eventually goes to court. He goes to court to say, this is the worst of all possible worlds. The VA writes the rules, they've written an ambiguous rule, and because we have longstanding precedent, the courts have to defer to an administrative agency's interpretation of its own ambiguous rule. And that's true irrespective of whether they are even applying it evenly across the board. Now, I I just want to remind people, when Justice Gorsuch went through his confirmation hearing, The huge issue with respect to him was a thing called Chevron deference. Uh, And I know this sounds sort of law geek stuff, but this really matters to people. Chevron means something even more uh, significant than in this particular case. Um, I'll just go backwards. The case that says we defer on regulations is our A-U-E-R. So this is the hour of Mm -hmm. reckoning, says the Wall Street Journal. It's kind of a clever headline. Chevron says we even defer to administrative agencies when they interpret statutes. So, Gorsuch is a longtime foe of the idea that courts can't intervene to essentially stand over this fourth branch of government. Um, and and that's at some levels what's so important to people here. The administrative state has become so big, so powerful. Um, I think you can make a case, given a congressional gridlock, all the actions in the administrative universe. So if we let them make rules, interpret the rules, and then consistently defer both to their interpretations of their own rules and their interpretations of Congress's statutes, you've in many ways said the other three branches are far less important than the administrative state.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I I, I think this is going to be the place where you see uh, Gorsuch, uh, in particular, really step out on um, reigning in the administrative state. And just by way of statistics, since 1997, 104,000 administrative regulations, a little over 3,000 a year. <laughs> just let that Insane. sink in, right? No one knows what these things, no human being knows what all of these say. So to pretend that the executive branch has some active Supervision of the bureaucratic state is nuts. Now, maybe the political science uh, scientists are going to disagree. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think uh, that's right. I mean, it I think you—it's not happening.
3: As I was thinking about this case, I was thinking of the imperial presidency, which really emerged after Bill Clinton, it's right? The imperial bureaucracy, yeah, right? Well, <laughs> but I mean, we're growing out of the executive branch, right? I mean, that's the idea is that these agencies fall under for the most part. Well, I
1: think I think that the point to the case, in some ways, to be honest, is the yeah. exact opposite. Hmm. Uh, that the executive branch is no longer in a position where it's functioning right. as an oversight mm-hmm. body oh. relative to all these administrative agencies. Now, maybe they could and don't, um, but, but here you've got what's effectively functioning as a fourth branch of government without any meaningful oversight because the courts are essentially, uh, essentially instructed, defer to whatever they say.
3: That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I was linking it with the executive branches because the president is the one who appoints the leaders of those branches. And then they, they follow that absolute direction. Yeah. You're, but and you're, but absolutely you're right. right about this that. is
4: and, and this is a concern of mine. Phil. Mm-hmm. So I'm I, I'm I'm going to be difficult for a second. <laughs> uh,
0: uh. I've come to understand what else is new. <laughs> Even on Double it's Jeopardy, like, he wants to like pick a fight.
4: Previously, we've talked about and when you've been on before about how uh the the court has or or your idea that the court shouldn't intervene or interpret or create laws um when Congress is failing to do that. So how is this different? How is this, how, why is it that the court should be stepping in in this case, as opposed to saying the executive branch isn't doing a good job and if, if they have a problem with the way these rules are being implemented, the executive branch should do something or Congress should legislate. Because why is this different? The, because the
1: victim here, it seems to me, is almost always somebody who was on the wrong side of an administrative decision, whether a property taking or a denial of benefits. And essentially that, uh, that decision Uh, is one that there is no appeal from. So uh, what's my preference? I don't love having the courts intervene. I'm not asking them to rewrite regulation and certainly not statutes, but I guess I am suggesting that where a statute or a regulation has been interpreted in a way that is patently wrong uh, and, and either wrong based on the language of it or wrong based on its inconsistency with the Constitution, you ought to have a right to get to the courts and not have them say, we're just going to defer to those administrative agencies. So, the, the, so I'm not asking for the rewriting of laws. I'm asking for a fair interpretation of them,
4: over which the judiciary has a right uh, of appeal. Yeah, that makes sense. So the difference is that, uh, as opposed to a you know an, uh, an actual
0: mm-hmm.
4: piece of legislation that has come out. Rather than the court. In those cases where the court's saying this is not right, it needs to be, we're going to change what it says or change how it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, maybe put it this way. One of the cases we talked about, that uh,
1: NLRB, Federal Arbitration Act, um, let's just assume the NLRB decides that the language of the Federal Arbitration Act means a particular thing. The plain language appears to say that it doesn't. That's a statute. mm -hmm. Uh, And somebody or a labor union or a non-labor member are harmed by that. In a, in a Chevron deference case, because that's statutory uh, law, essentially the courts would say, well, we've got
4: to defer to them. So the difference in this case would be, and it, this sort of situation would be stepping in to say, you're interpreting that statute incorrectly, mm-hmm. as opposed to the case we mm-hmm. talked about before, which was saying mm-hmm. that statute is wrong and we're gonna change the statute. Right, right.
3: See, that's interesting, because I, I, what I was thinking about here was the courts potentially saying to the Congress, it's, it's your turn to step up. You're, you're, you're talking about that somebody could go to the courts to, to appeal this. My thought on this is that the courts are saying to Congress, the legislative branch, this is, it's your turn to return mm-hmm. to the playing field. Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm not so sure they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, listen, the president could call, let's say, the Department of Agriculture or the Department of uh, Commerce and say, I don't like this particular rule. And I think. But the reality is they're not. He mm-hmm. isn't. Uh, And and none have. Uh, This isn't just a Trump thing, right? Presidents don't do that. So this this bureaucratic state has become so enormous, maybe just by default or negligence, that what we – I I think this case and even a a case that took on Chevron, it's not about dismantling it. It's about providing honest oversight of it by the other government. We don't say the president can do whatever he likes without Congress, congressional and judicial oversight, or Congress can do whatever it wants without the – but we are effectively saying with the deference rules, these regulatory bodies can do whatever they want, and we're going to defer to them. Yeah. And we tend to let partisanship
3: dictate that. So when mm-hmm. the president in power is the one that we mm-hmm. like, we say, do everything you want. Yeah. And then when it's another president, we say, like, boy, yeah. we feel like there should be greater oversight. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm sympathetic to this case. I, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a value in bringing back a true balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Should probably move on. Talk beer. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun time. That was, that was fun. great. Yeah, it
1: was great. Thanks. Yeah, and you guys were more interested than in, in administrative law than some of the others were. I will say, with with this case, when you, you sent it over, and I started reading
3: Kaiser, and I thought, this is this is so. And then I got to the the balance of power stuff, and I was like, yeah, this, isn't just this is interesting. Man, it's in
2: the administrative <laughs> yes. state. Nobody has these discussions except us. That's I know. why this we're is, so good at that's this right. thing. I'm not good at it. You guys are good at it, but I'm just here for moral oh. support. Phil, what are you drinking? Um,
4: uh, so I am tonight. I'm drinking um, a pig's ear brown ale Gross. from the Woodstock Inn Brewery in New Hampshire. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, this is this is a, a fine beer. Um, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you always tip your hand. <laughs> well, I, I, it really is. I don't. I don't mean that in any. It, it didn't blow me away. <clears throat> I, brown ales are fine. I think I tend to want something. I, my my impression when I drink this is I, I really like the flavor. I want it to be more kind of robust, a little mm-hmm. bit more intense. And I, I think that's just the nature of brown ales. And I'm always a little disappointed in them. Like, like I'm expecting like a stout or something. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, all in all, I think if you like brown ales, it's a, it's a good one.
3: That's good. So uh, the first beer that uh, Tom, Nick, and I tried is a Liquid Spiritual Delight. And this was uh, given to me by a friend of mine, a neighbor down the street, Jason. Uh, and I'm going to read you the description here. It says, an Imperial Stout aged in whiskey barrels and blended with Blueprint Coffee. Only 15 cases produced, you lucky SOB. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
3: So I'm going to go to Tom first for his reaction because oh. you're, you're the, the expert on, on Imperial
2: Stouts.
1: This is a good beer. Yeah. It's really heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Heavy in alcohol, heavy in body. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's delicious. It's got some coffee in it, but I don't detect that as much as I do. Just a really heavy, boozy, yeah. yes, uh, alcohol sort of thing. So, yeah, very enjoyable, but boy, uh, in small doses. Yes,
2: yeah, yeah. Nick. Yeah, kind of the same thing. It was it, w- it was very very heavy. That was really the, the the over overarching thing that I thought it was. Um, it was a. L- there was a decent amount of sweetness to it, mm-hmm. um, but then there there did there was a little bit of that kind of, slightly bitter coffee aftertaste, yeah. which kind of flipped it a little, which I thought was good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like you said, in in small doses, it's it's really really it's a good beer. It's a really yeah. good beer. You have to have a small amount of it. I think.
3: So Tom, you brought what was the beer that I loved so much? A couple last time you were on the Imperial Stout the one you got in Michigan whatever that one was
4: oh that one was so good oh, that turned from me, silver harbor oh yes. my
3: goodness so that that right. started my addiction to mm-hmm. so i've been so this last weekend we were drinking mm-hmm. the uh, the goose island ones mm-hmm. and those are a little bit too boozy for me mm-hmm. I, this was a step back from that i, I enjoyed it but this is oh, but the
1: Silver Harbor one was a little bit lighter, yes, a little mm-hmm. bit less, L- yes,
3: a little sweeter, overwhelming, yeah, yep. uh, but a good beer. Yep. Our second one we tried was a 1776 uh, James Pepper American Brown Ale, uh, and this is made. And I didn't see where this one was made. Uh, I don't know. I can not see where the brewery is. Um, Find it, damn it! Oh, this is in Virginia, uh, Georgetown Trading Company, Sterling, Virginia. So, um, I, Nick, what do you think about this one?
2: It's different. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't put my finger on it. I
3: don't like this one as much as is the first one. Uh, it's the rye. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what the you're rye. Tasting mm-hmm. Yes.
1: So the grain bill has rye in it, mm-hmm. and that gives it that little bit of a spicy, yeah, uh, different taste. Mm-hmm. Depending on how much rye is in there yeah. with, with the barley, but I bet that's what you're tasting. I feel the same way. I yeah. Uh, I I don't love it, but I don't generally love beers that are that are brewed
2: with rye. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it had a very. Yeah, I can't think of a better word than spicy. I'm just going to defer to yeah. you with these things <laughs> when you're here. Oh, you want to plug? Uh, I can probably do that. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I finish this. Um yeah, beers that we try, uh, you can find on Untapped that you can download um, on iOS and Android. Um, we are Barstool Politics on there, so look for our uh, reviews of everything that we try on the podcast. That's good. All right, speed round, Nick. Yep. This is going to be a good one. We're yeah. going to take 10
3: minutes because this is this is important stuff. So, <laughs> All right, so it's been hard to keep up with all the president's legal challenges uh, recently. A good rule of thumb is that if Donald Trump was in charge of it, it's likely under investigation these days. Most prominent, though, are the Southern District of New York's investigation of potential... Campaign finance violations and Special Counsel Robert Mueller's rush investigation. This week, President Trump referred to his former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, as a rat. Nick, he called him a rat. It's a rat. Whole family oh, is full of rats. No, but he didn't note that Cohen only became a rat after the FBI did something so unthinkable as to break into, in, in all caps, into an attorney's office. Tom, you're the attorney that all of us are going to go to once the special counsel turns its eyes on us. Uh, what's your sense of just how much legal trouble the president is in? Is this a big deal, little deal, no deal? Like If you were advising Donald Trump right now, what do you tell him? I just
1: him? want to temper your sarcasm about breaking into a lawyer's <laughs> office, sir, my friend. Those are sacrosanct uh, uh, regions yeah. there. Uh, but seriously, um, uh, the bigger issue here remains, and we talked about this when it happened, raiding a lawyer's office filling up bankers' boxes with all the paper in it and going out the front door is a very big deal. And I think you'll recall when we talked about this a few months ago when it happened, um, we explained the process was that there'd be third parties, they'd look at it before those Justice Department attorneys that are prosecuting. So we've never heard back. We don't know what they found in Cohen's office. And it strikes me that the thing that Trump is probably really worried about might be what's on paper and in those bankers' boxes. But I guess I have to say, uh, as a threat to the president, um, I'm not hyperventilating yet. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think this is as big a deal as, as others do, and I, there's at least three reasons. The first is, the worse Cone looks, and this guy looks really bad, <laughs> the safer the president is. Yeah. You know, when you put a guy on the stand and say, uh, tell us all the bad things the president did, when you've already conceded, you've done dozens yourself, when you're unseemly, when you're unsavory, When you're a little bit unhinged, he was talking today, or when he was talking at his sentencing about uh, being sentenced freed him from uh, the personal, I don't know what it was, incarceration of the president or something like that. Not a guy people are gonna believe, I think. Second, these are FEC violations, and and we've said this before. Uh, Paying off somebody to not be a part of a a smear campaign during a uh, presidential campaign we don't prosecute these things. Maybe we should, but we don't. Uh, you know, John Edwards did it mm-hmm. and wasn't prosecuted. So my well, he's prosecuted is, but not
3: found guilty, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so I, my sense is that, that the charges themselves, let's assume everybody believes Cohen, and I don't think they will, the charges themselves probably aren't that big a deal, and there's still no circle back to Russia that I can see mm-hmm. yet. And third, I think Trump has an interesting defense here, and it is there's no mens rea on the FEC violations. That is, I think what he'll say if he's shrewd is, my lawyer told me to do it. Right. And he said it wasn't illegal. Cohen's his lawyer. <clears throat> Cohen facilitated the payments. Cohen admits he did all that. So now, all Donald Trump, I think, has to say is, look, my lawyer told me to do it. Does that and work? And maybe you remove the men's ray from the criminal charge. So
3: outside of all the politicized Donald Trump stuff, in, in normal cases, if, if a defendant says, my lawyer said this was okay, does that work?
1: You know, as a technical matter, you're assumed to know the law, but of course, having just said there were 104,000 new regulations, nobody actually does. So jurors are a little sympathetic to the idea that if your lawyer tells you a thing is legal and you do it, believing it to be, and he might have believed that, uh, that maybe that you don't find a person guilty for doing a thing they didn't know was wrong.
0: Mm.
2: Interesting. Would that work in this particular case, though, (laughs) is the question. (laughs)
1: Well, I don't know. Listen, here's a guy that said I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. And I think we long ago crossed the Rubicon on worrying about whether presidents have sexual peccadilloes, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's Kennedy or Clinton or Trump. This just doesn't seem to be a thing that exercises the American people anymore. So I don't know. Are they going to care that uh, he tried to cover up? I don't know. I
4: doubt it.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Phil, you're thinking. So yeah, no, I mean, I we're, all,
4: we're all looking to Phil. Yeah. Wait a minute, I, <laughs> no, I, I think, no, I, I have. I, there's, there's several directions I want to go with it. With one of which is, I, I think what makes it, it's not the, it's not the porn star part of it. It's the, it's the action that was done to influence the outcome of a federal election. So if, if this information were available, would the election have gone differently? And did Donald Trump cover it up to prevent that from happening? Um, that's the that's why where it turns into this big thing. I, there's also another aspect of this that I, there's where I, I want to pull the sort of actual and the hypothetical apart a little bit, um, which is the into this this mens re like my lawyer told me to do it and I believed him um, in a normal person, someone who doesn't have an extensive view of the law. That seems like an interesting and potentially a uh, convincing argument, mm-hmm. but we're talking about the chief executive of the United States, like the person who is the the highest enforcer of the law, mm-hmm. and so it seems like there's a. I realize that it's also Donald Trump, right? So the idea that Donald Trump is unaware of the law is one thing, but the idea that the president of the United States is, I mean, if you were gonna, if you were if it were a lawyer that were charged with this and he were to say, my lawyer told me that it was okay. And so I believed him and you had a similar knowledge of the law, right? It would make, it would, it would undo some of the weight of that argument. Right? Mm -hmm. So when it's the chief executive of the United States who is charged with upholding and, you know, carrying out all the laws of the U S does that lose some of its Mm -hmm. force? It might. And uh, the argument isn't that paying
1: off the porn star is seemly. The argument is, he may not have known it violated FEC uh, regulations, and that his lawyer told them that he did not. Uh, told him that he, uh, it did not be different if his campaign manager said that. Uh, it, it seems to me, but when your lawyer provides you with that kind of advice about a detail of federal election law, then it seems to me there ought to be some validity to that. And uh, listen, while we say people all are assumed to know the law, none of us do, lawyer right. or president mm-hmm. alike. It feels wrong to let the president say he didn't know the Mm -hmm. law, but listen. Anybody who's listening to this podcast, who's a lawyer, knows you don't know even a small fraction of it, and we know more about it than most of everybody else. I wonder
3: whether this comes down to that conversation between David Pecker, uh, Cohen, and Donald Trump about this payoff, and and that you know. So you have both Cohen and and Mm -hmm. Pecker uh, from the National Enquirer; they they're now cooperating witnesses. And and they can give insight into that conversation. And mm-hmm. if they say, "Oh yeah," at that conversation, we all knew this was bad. Mm-hmm. And that if this information came out, it would be bad for the campaign. That that strikes me as Trump's in a bit more trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when the Southern District of New York released their statement, whatever it was, a while ago, I was it. I was imp- I don't know impressed is the right word they really made a powerful case to say, no, these campaign finance violations matter for the democracy, and this helped decide the election. And I was like you, Tom, I thought, well, you know, everybody violates this, and I think they made an impassioned case to say, these laws matter.
1: Yeah, and I hope Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that I think they don't, I'm suggesting in practice they haven't been enforced. Um, But let me just suggest that a defense lawyer's dream Uh, is the National Enquirer and Michael Cohen (laughs) as the two (laughs) principal pieces of evidence (laughs) on the other side's case. You're, you you know, work for who? Right, the National Enquirer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I almost want to use the legal phrase "res ipsa or, The thing speaks for itself. I hardly need to say another thing. Who's <laughs> <time, laughs> your employer? No, wait. Not, not only your employer. What do you run? And, and every the time the National Cohen, Enquirer.
3: Cohen opens his mouth, he loses credibility. Yeah, I mean, man. this guy—he right. is not a national hero. And I think we just have to start no, there. He—I no. mean, it, it speaks to who Trump surrounds himself with. But no, he is. He is not somebody you want to put on the stand
4: right mm-hmm. it, it, wouldn't this be the case in any sort of i don't know or uh, I, the you know whether it's the mob or i mean any sort of like not even that like even if you know bill and i together you know, robbed a bank and murdered someone. We're doing lots of t- crimes, Barker. Yeah. I know, I <laughs> know. At least Bill is. Just yes. before or after oh, wait, you Bill, killed him on, get, on
3: the high Bill seas. Bill was the victim of the crime <laughs> the first <laughs> time yes. the I did I murdered you before. Now I <laughs> murdered. Yes. Murder you. yes.
4: Um, but and, I mean, it seems like this is often the case, right? You have yeah. you have unsavory people, people who are not the most <laughs> upstanding citizens, involved in mm-hmm. testimony and when you have a criminal case. And it, I don't. I, it, certainly, Cohen's, I mean, he's he's uh, you know a weasel, but I, that, it seems like that's often the case, right? I mean, that's where. Um, it will come down to that, you know, the paper documents and the ability to actually corroborate what he's saying. So, right. So those paper right. documents. And, and again, we're back to the we don't know what we don't even know. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what Mueller has, not just with respect to the Cohen files that were seized, but uh, uh, maybe Pecker has documents. Sure. Who knows? Maybe he's got recordings that we don't yet know about. So, I mean, the, the great unknown here is so big right. that I guess all you can speculate on now is what Cohen and yeah. others have said publicly. I also
3: wonder. It feels to me like we're we've we've had a shift in the last couple of weeks, and and I wonder whether law enforcement, the Department of Justice, whether Trump's attack and repeated attack on the law. I mean, the other thing. I mean, he called Cohen a rat, right? I mean, he's a rat because he's helping the Department of Justice. At some level, this this, this I mean, Cohen is a rat, right? But I mean, it's it's sort of awful that the president, who's in charge of this department, is all of that is problematic. But whether these institutions of justice, turn their attention to Trump and maybe don't go after Russia Maybe not even the campaign finance violations, but Trump has certainly committed a whole host of criminal activity. Or I should say, I would guess. I would guess, given what we've seen. Good I mean, today he dissolved his charity, right? He was like, well, this is getting kind of ugly. So if (laughs) if it's likely that he's engaged in criminal activity, I wonder whether there aren't going to be a lot of forces looking into every aspect of his previous behavior. And if there is crime there, this could be really, really bad for the president. Mm -hmm. And again, speculating, just guessing. Uh, But I I think I would be a little worried for the the skeletons in the closet if I were Donald Trump. And I'm just guessing, but uh, Mm -hmm. he doesn't strike me as a straight guy.
1: (laughs) What's a a greater threat uh, to democracy? Uh, Fooling around at the edges of campaign finance law or the relentless permanent Congress as an investigator uh, uh, mode? I'm inclined to think that we've done more damage to democracy by turning Congress and in turn these special prosecutors into uh, constant fixtures in the American investigative universe. I don't mean to say yeah. we don't worry about the, the criminality or, or these other things, but it really worries me that we have stopped governing and begun to simply investigate. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's Name some Name an important thing there's Congress uh, has done, I don't know, in uh, pick a number of years. It was the last time they
4: did something important. Tom, the 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 motto of this podcast is that two things can be true. (laughs) (laughs) One of those examples: tinkering around with elections that might like impact the outcome of an election seems like a pretty damn big thing when it comes to democracy. But I think your point is also totally valid, which is that when Congress gets involved in sort of just pointing fingers and trying to prove the other side is the bad guy, that's also not
2: particularly good. We're gonna have to get a coat of arms or something with that on. I know it's so good. All right, Merch is coming soon. Two I things
1: promise. can be true. true all we have to do is put it in <laughs> Latin and it's going to be all good. Oh, oh <laughs> we're good.
3: All right, next topic. Phil wants the Brexit too. So, all right, last <laughs> week Phil couldn't be with us and he was deeply sad that he couldn't talk about the stealing of the British Parliament mace and other dramatic developments in the United Kingdom's attempt to exit from the EU. We thought it wise to revisit the topic again this week in light of all the new developments and get some sage advice from our comparative <laughs> politics expert. Theresa May is still clinging to her position, but there appears to be no support for the Brexit deal she worked out with the EU. On Monday, she reject- rejected the idea of another referendum on whether to leave the EU. Phil, if May cannot get a deal through Parliament, th- there will be a very hard Brexit from the EU. What's your reaction? What's going on? What do we need to be thinking about all of this chaos?
4: Mostly, I just wanted to talk about the May. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Thank <laughs> God. That
3: was the best part. They they, they yeah. get to remind our listeners some jackass stole the mace and started running out of the the parliament. Well, it's it was not just some jackass, it the, was a, a legislator. Well, two things can be true, Nick. Of course.
4: <laughs>
2: I'm sorry,
3: Lord Jackass did. <laughs> no. yeah. This has
4: happened in the past, and I always thought it was great that you know this there there's so much ceremony involved in British politics that that picking up the ceremony it's not even picking it up, like moving it from its its position on top of the table to the front of the table yeah. means like the the parliament is done like you can't do anything else because that has been moved and it's happened in the past i didn't ever imagine that it would happen again and so the fact that it did is, is fantastic um but no the i i mean i this is it's it's this is it's bad the situation is bad for for britain as a whole like I, there's no good way out of this i don't think um i mean i think that i i think that I see. I don't even you're convinced of this. The 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 potentially not easy way out, but uh, maybe the the way out is to have another another vote on this, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is something that um, almost immediately after the first vote, it was it became very unpopular. People were people talked about how they weren't aware of the implications of it. That does not excuse them, right? You have a vote, and you need to inform yourselves and and vote. And so I understand the arguments against. You know, there are lots of people who say. If you go back and redo this vote, if you undo the vote through another vote, you're undermining the the importance of a vote in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I get that I get that point, but um, I, that's where every every potential way you push on this, there there is an argument against it. It's it's a place that they uh, I I think in the end the the lesson that I take from this is, or the thing that I've thought about this week, um, whatever ends up happening, um, we we've talked a lot about the international view of the United States and how the U.S. reputation has been damaged in the last two years or 20 years, depending on how you want to look at it. And this has led for, for, for Britain to have been one of the most important, most significant sort of international leaders, states um, in international politics in a matter of a year and a half. They Like any semblance that they are, you know, they've, they've got it together or they are an international leader or they've got this figured out has just been shattered. Like I think they're the the world view of britain mm-hmm. is permanently damaged because of this or at least damaged in at least the mi- the moderate to long run sure tom you you've spent some time
3: in ireland and you know, <laughs> <That's, you've, laughs> it's a, a bit of an interest for you it's, how do you how do you react to all of this
1: you know i i'll just go a different direction i respect the hell out of uh, may who was given an undoable job yeah. who has with con- just constant um, mindfulness and integrity, tried to pull off a thing uh, that is almost impossible. Yes. She's got dignity, she's got integrity. Um, wherever you stand on Brexit, right. I, I just I want to throw a nod in her direction. Um, of course, the libertarian view is the one Phil just rejected. The people voted, <laughs> so government should listen. Um, and the people can't keep voting. It's a little like double jeopardy. The people can't keep voting until Phil gets his Brexit or not. <laughs> I, I, no, now they figured it out,
3: Tom. They did the first vote, they weren't really sure. Well, now but, they're paying attention.
1: Right. But, but the people spoke. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the political view, I so, wonder. So if, if Britain damaged itself uh, this way, how much damage is done uh, both internally and externally uh, holding a second vote? It feels to me like it would be a lot. I don't know what you international guys think.
3: Un- unless it was overwhelming, unless it came in at like seventy-five percent or something, where the British public said, "We've actually now finally thought about this," which, which you know, <laughs> could happen. But short of that, if it's if it's a fifty-one forty-nine thing, I think it's it's really really problematic. Um, so-
4: so people, I, I, sorry, I'm stuck on what you said, Tom, people, voted so people vote on the same thing, like multiple times all the time, right? I mean, we elect, we have, we have elections regularly and, and repeatedly, right? I mean, this is the idea that we wouldn't vote again on an issue that we have already voted on seems strange, like to turn around and do it a week later and say, we didn't like the outcome, so let's do it again seems different than a couple of years going by and saying this has turned out to be really problematic. There's not as much support for it as there was. Maybe we should figure out if people still support this idea or not.
2: Go, Nick. I, go, go, yeah, go. God. <laughs> so I, I agree with, with you, Tom, and, and everybody else as well. I, I think May has, has done a fairly decent job of trying to weather a, a horrible situation. Having said that, I think the negotiation uh, and the the deals that she's created out of this aren't necessarily th- like th- you're right. They voted <laughs> like that was a, your your job at that point is to create the best possible deal out of a bad situation. And it seems like the deals that have come out of this, at least from the UK standpoint, are not necessarily kowtowing, but more influence on the demands of the EU as opposed to the will of UK citizens who were responsible for this in the first place. I don't care whether you agree with it or not, but realistically it seems like most of the pushback from this isn't I understand that there is probably a good portion of the uh, the population of Great Britain and the UK in general that has reconsidered this, but at the same time it seems like the eu is stalling to a point that they're they're not giving what could potentially be a an amicable um, uh, release and and divorce uh, it's it's due they it's i i think they're being shitheads about it because more than have, anything but they have to worry about other countries they do. exiting right but that's, so that's right yeah. that's what I, and that's what bothers me yeah. about this that's not the problem of the citizens of the UK at this point, because this is what they voted for. But it,
4: it is the problem of the, US, of the
2: UK citizens. How because so?
4: They, because the because Britain signed treaties and it changed their laws to join the EU. If I sign a contract with you, and then I decide I want out of it, yeah, um, it is my problem. Like, you're right, I have to but there out, how was to get the, out of the contract.
2: You're right, but there's a clause in the EU constitution that allows for sure. a break from the oh, EU. They can do this. So if it's yeah. not well written or well rounded out, I that's, I guess, a problem on both sides. But there needs, you know, the the process is there, at least in theory. So I I, I don't know. I think the EU has more to lose out of this in the UK at this point. So
3: an interesting thing for me this week was that Poland, uh, so the EU has been pushing back on Poland about this, what they're doing to the Supreme Court there. Mm -hmm. And, And Poland's been kind of saying, oh, we're not, you know, what basically what happened is the Polish government Imposed uh, age limit. They bumped it from 70 to 65. Phil, is that what I can't remember? And so the intent was to get rid of all of what they called the communist justices off the Supreme Court. God bless. (laughs) But it was very clear what they were doing. And the EU said, you you can't do this just to get rid of a group, including the chief justice. And they pushed back against Poland. And so there was this back and forth where the EU was saying, if you're going to do this, there's going to be there's going to be consequences. And Poland shifted and said, okay, we're not going to do this. We're going to reinstate all of these uh, justices on the Supreme Court very different than what's happened in britain where britain said we're willing to make that that exit we're willing to leave because there's value in joining the eu now the uk has the entire right to say we don't want that uh, but there is value in being part of this organization. It's it's like joining a club, Nick. I don't disagree. If, if, a lot of towels, you know, like a gym. You join the gym if they got a lot of towels. You say it's worth the hundred twenty dollars a and month, like a country club. 100?
1: There's lots of rules, right? Yes, and exactly. There's lots of other people yes. paying attention to what you do. It and, and it feels those rules. to me like one of the undercurrents, and I know it's not the only one, but. British people saying, "Listen, we've we've got our own government, and now we got another one. Right? Yep. And and maybe it's too much. Yes. And Pushing they're struggling with that, right? What you know? Yes.
2: we've also talked on this podcast significantly about Eastern Europe and and uh, Poland to some extent. They may have agreed in this particular situation, but that's not the trend that we've seen over the past several years, mm-hmm. where they flip and agree with the statutes and rules and regulations of the EU. It's not." functioning the way that it should because it's a conglomerate of sovereign states and not a real integrated international community like it's supposed to be at least in theory yeah phil
4: no i mean there's certainly there are absolutely issues with the eu there's no doubt about that i don't have a problem with that i i just i i i don't i tend to i don't i don't i don't see how a I think in the long run, leaving the, the EU is more problematic for Britain than staying in it and working on some of these yeah. issues, especially since Britain was not a full member anyway. They weren't a mm-hmm. member of right, the European right, sure. Monetary Union. Yeah. There were all sorts of they had negotiated when they joined a more limited structure of their involvement. And um, I don't know. That's,
3: yeah, that's the border with Ireland, too, is, is a fascinating right. one. Right. But I mean, that's right. just that's such a hard issue. So what's,
1: what's Norway only? I feel What's like one Nor- of the things I've heard uh, one of these options described as is a Norway only,
4: and, and I'm wondering, what, what, anybody
1: know? Norway.
2: Only.
4: Uh, so I don't. I don't know what that. I mean, Norway has a has a weird relationship mm-hmm. with the European Union, in which they're not a member, but they get lots of the benefits. Which I so I wouldn't. I'm sure is there's it, maybe some... that's
1: what Britain wants to be. The, the, right, the big. Norway.
2: Yeah. Norway is small. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Right. So it yeah. changes like things. Really isn't, small. Yes. I mean, isn't that an <laughs> issue in itself that you have this conglomeration of nations and there's preferential treatment for some and some are full members but have specific deals where they're not really members and <laughs> other ones that are kind of on the periphery. That's and global
3: and, politics, Nick. The powerful do what the weak, Just except for they on, Norway's weak. <laughs> they don't matter.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> there is there is some irony in this and that we just I mean, not that long ago, we went through the Scottish referendum, which failed, but which Britain mm-hmm. took was very insistent about. If you leave, screw you. You don't get to stay yeah, a part of the right. Town. Yeah, you don't. Like, right. You know, you. You're, you know, tough shit. You're on your own. We're not doing anything if you leave. And so now it's like turned around in the same situation. And Britain's like,
0: well,
2: well,
4: you know, what about, you know, just be nice to us. We just want to leave. But Um, I mean, realistically,
2: I mean, from an economic standpoint, what is left for the EU after the UK? If, If there is a hard Brexit in March, from an economic stability standpoint, they have... Germany,
4: France, at this point? Italy. Italy yeah, G- France. Italy's one one of the top 10 uh, economies in the. I mean, the, the EU is like one of the top economic powers
3: in the world. It could hurt the UK more than. That, that'll be interesting to think. But I see. But I, I think hey, well, this might hurt. It will
4: doubt hurt the UK more yeah. than, than economically speaking in the short term. It'll yeah. hurt the UK more than it hurts the EU. Now, in the be long run, we got to talk Obamacare. Fine. <laughs> All right. The affordable Speaking care of long term disaster. <laughs> yes. That's
3: right. The Affordable okay. Care Act appears to be on life support. Nick, you gotta like that one, right? That's, that's clever. That was just
2: for you. It's clever.
3: Uh, after a federal judge <laughs> in Texas ruled the law unconstitutional on Friday. The decision has the potential to throw the country's health care system into turmoil if it's held up on appeal. O'Connor, the judge, uh, made his decision after eighteen Republican state attorneys general and two GOP governors brought the case. O'Connor argued that the Supreme Court upheld the ACA in 2012 because it included an individual mandate or tax penalty for Americans who did not buy health insurance. However, after Congress repealed the individual mandate in 2017, O'Connor concluded that the rest of the law fell apart and was therefore unconstitutional. This brings up both interesting legal and political questions. Let's start with Tom on the legal side, but then we can talk whether the death of the Affordable Care Act, also for Nick, is actually good politics for Republicans. Uh, Tom, start
2: us off on this. I like how I get that
1: part. <laughs> yes. well, maybe the first thing to say is anybody who's rushing to move to Canada because they think they've lost their health care should slow down. No, there's no immediate leave, legal effect to this decision, yes. because there was not an accompanying inj- uh, injunction. Right. And the, the Trump administration has said they'll continue to essentially act as though uh, the Affordable Care Act is the law of the land. There's three parts to the ruling. They're interesting, and there's a sense to it, even if you're uh, a fan of the uh, ACA. The first is standing. This is a thing that comes up frequently in these. We talked about it in the Establishment uh, Clause case, actually. Um, Plaintiffs have to be injured, uh, and and you can't be a plaintiff if you haven't been injured. Mm -hmm. So here, the first thing the judge decided was that if plaintiffs are told they have to do a thing, then they have standing to say that doing that thing injures them. Uh, The second one, and this is the big ticket item, is the constitutionality. And and here, basically, the argument is if Congress zeroed the tax penalty, it isn't any more a tax, and the Roberts decision that upheld the Affordable Care Act was premised on the idea that even though everybody said at the time they wrote the Affordable Care Act, it wasn't one. It was, in effect, a tax. Mm -hmm. And it's not as ludicrous a thing as people have tried to make it sound. He didn't say, it's a tax, and you people didn't really say that. Uh, He he said, uh, this is what taxes look like, and this is how taxes are enforced, and treating it as a tax isn't illogical. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Zero that out and the leg that was holding up the stool no longer does. So the, the logic of this opinion is, if that leg's not there, mm-hmm. then you don't have a law anymore. Now, the, the third element is severability. And uh, this is the thing that comes again, again often in the law. Can you preserve a part of a law? Or, you know, Phil, you talked about signing a contract. Can you preserve part of a contract when another part uh, has been deemed unenforceable? And uh, contracts all have severability clauses, or your lawyer has committed malpractice, (laughs) right? So uh, if one part fails, the rest of it stands. Uh, The Affordable Care Act doesn't, at least on its face, have such a thing. And the position taken by the judge was if the central thing, uh, the glue that holds it all together, was this individual mandate, and that now is unconstitutional, the rest falls with it. Uh, It's going to go through several appeal layers, one assumes. He still technically has jurisdiction and more to hear. He might, uh, uh, for example, entertain a motion to rehear. So uh, it's a long way from the Supreme Court, though I can't imagine that they wouldn't take this case if it gets through a federal circuit and make a judgment about whether it's an appropriate decision. Any what predictions?
4: You, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about his, his, his decision? Do you think that yeah. sticks or is that I, a problem I think the standing
1: it? argument does. I think the constitutionality argument uh, uh, is a powerful one. Uh, all that kept the Affordable Care Act alive was the Roberts opinion saying the mandate was a tax. Mm-hmm. The question is whether zeroing out the penalty is the same as eliminating it altogether. In other words, what, what the Republicans did was to make it a zero penalty. The mandate's technically still there. There's just no penalty for failing right. to oh, abide that's by interesting. it. interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I think close readers of the law will say, we haven't eliminated the tax. We've simply said there is a zero tax. <laughs> uh, this is a little bit like double jeopardy, yes. right? Yes. It's still there, even though it doesn't have consequence. So uh, if I had to guess, I think the Supreme Court... Uh, reverses this decision on the grounds that um, the zeroing doesn't equal the elimination of. Moreover, Mm -hmm. Congress took one part of the law and changed it. And I think you can make an argument on severability that they could have done a lot of other things and yet they treated this as a severable part of the law when they changed it and nothing else. So I think uh, that part of the argument also has, has real difficulties look, we're going to get health care yeah. for all. Uh, Bernie's on it. So before it ever gets to the Supreme Court, you guys are going to have solved the problem. Am I right? How's that for a pass? Sounds off? good. Oh, has, has the baton moved to the other yes. side of the table? I'll
0: take the baton. And take the baton, my friend. <laughs> mm. um, you
1: never I, gave I, me a handoff like that. I'm going to just. <laughs> all you ever want to do is fight with me, and here I'm throwing the baton at you with open arms. <laughs> The lovable libertarian <laughs> and the pessimistic progressive. That's all I'm going to say.
4: Um, uh, I don't think you're wrong on the, I, the 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 like you were jokingly saying about Bernie's you know, got this or whatever, but I do think that that's still accepting <laughs> the baton and being nice about them. I'm not
1: wrong. <laughs> he can't bring him to, he can't bring himself to say I might be right, but
0: I'm going to no, take I, what I can I, guess. I, I, I <laughs> right,
4: in that the, I think the political ramification of this is that that's where the democratic party is going to go yeah. is that whether they will be successful or not with that. I think, you know, the lesson learned here is that the approach that the Democrats took was to try to come up with this moderate in between sort of Republican, uh based idea about health care mm-hmm. and the and they they eked that through and ever since the republicans have crapped on it and i yeah. think the the less it like looking back on it i think that the there are a lot of democrats who now say well shit we should have just done medicare for all from the from the beginning um, and i think that as a result that is probably the likely that would be my guess is that the next time the democrats hold the c- control congress and the and the presidency that's likely where it's going to go. That's and that that's the lesson learned from this it, mm-hmm. for them is that, you know, we, the, the attempt to sort of go the moderate path is on this issue is, um, it hasn't hasn't paid off. For them. Oh, What's so. interesting? Republicans moved on this
3: too. The 2018 midterms. A lot of Republicans were endorsing key elements of the Affordable Care Act. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if this decision is necessarily good news for Republicans yeah. who might have to run on this in 2020. Yeah. And you're right, Phil. Who Democrats are going to hammer this on? Mm-hmm. On hammer them on
2: this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for the Republicans who brought this forward, it was a a brilliant short-term. Strategy. Yeah. Uh, I in no way think that they thought it through. And this is uh, just, for me, at least more evidence that they are not capable of understanding the consequences of their actions and what this is going to do. Like you said, Phil, when the Democrats are controlling the presidency and, and, and Congress, the fact that the end game of all of this is that we continue to see wider and wider swings um without real policy behind the decisions that are made is extremely disconcerting for me and they they just don't seem to care at this point and i and i would assume like you said i think the democrats will probably go for the jugular when they have the opportunity again i doubt there will be good policy or or decision making or legislation behind that either and it's it's just, it's, it's real bad, no, it's real bad. I'm not happy about
3: it's it. A, it's a good point, it's easier to, to critique from the opposition than it is to govern and the, and the Republicans are stuck in a tough position
0: mm-hmm. now.
1: I, I would just say real quickly this, there's a temptation to think a Bush appointed <clears throat> judge did this on political grounds. And, and while I think he's likely to be reversed, uh, there's an entirely plausible argument uh, on all three of the grounds on which he decided this case. Uh, And I don't think it was about politics. I think it was about uh, a way of reading the statute and the law. So
0: I'm
1: I'm worried that that a lot of the editorializing about this was, ah, you know, a Texas judge and, and that sort of thing. I don't think this was an obviously political decision at all. I, no. and the one thing I will say is, I'm not saying any of you are saying no no, 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 no.
3: I was, I was actually happy to see the media mentioned he was a Texas judge, but mm-hmm. never mentioned. Was, was it George W. Bush? Yeah. Is that no, nobody, no, but no, Bush Senior. Nobody mentioned that. And that, that was a good thing. Like I, or at least I, ha- I hadn't read anything that mentioned it linked to mm-hmm. – I mean, they mentioned Texas, but they didn't mention a mm-hmm. presidency. And I was actually happy the media did that. You we have to?
1: We, what's that? If you mention Texas, mention a presidency? Yeah. <laughs> well, but I think so. I mean, it's, it's so isn't often – Isn't that to use a film word, a dog whistle? I don't, don't know. So I, often <laughs> we do this. Like, we, we,
3: with these judges, we point to who appointed them. And I, I was yeah. happy to see the media didn't say this was a Bush appointee, right? Because yeah, I
1: – Back I, up. I don't know which Bush –
3: I mean, well, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. I hadn't, I didn't know, and I, I've read a whole bunch about this and mm-hmm. didn't see that. And so, good. Good, We we spent a lot of time bashing the media. At least on this yeah. time, they didn't make this a partisan yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Can we go to the final one? Yes, please. All right, I love this one. This is good. All right, <laughs> the Merriam-Webster their 2018 word of the year this year <clears> was <throat> justice you had to love this one. <laughs> so, uh, this is an annual distinction the dictionary's editors choose based entirely on lookup data. So, basically, what people are looking up. There were 74, 74% more lookups for justice on Merriam-Webster than in 2017. Um, other top words were nationalism, pansexual, lodestar, feckless. <laughs> <Theckless. laughs> Pissant, I loved Pissant. That's a I good one. I call you
0: a feckless pissant all the time. <laughs> I know. That a, both in there.
3: I oh. assume that was what drove <laughs> it up. Oh, I call you a feckless pissant <laughs> <Ant> maverick <laughs> all the time. Well, that. maverick was the other one, yeah. <laughs> so given that we we're nearing the end of the year, and it's a good time for some reflection on the past year, I ask you, gentlemen, what is your word of 2018? And remember, Nick,
2: pissant is already taken. Mm. So start us off. What's your word of the year, Nick? Uh, triggered would be my word. Triggered. <laughs> yeah. I, it's just so it's just ridiculous yeah I'm so I, I I'm extremely <laughs> worried about I you guys are, are very cerebral about all these discussions and I tend to come <laughs> at it from a more uh, popular cultural I, I don't know just I
1: he's working his way up to saying he wish he could have said pissant yeah <laughs> from a
2: pissant perspective sorry I it's hmm 2018, from the perspective of American culture, is I, I I haven't seen it in my lifetime in the state that it is right now, yeah. and it's very disconcerting. And and the fact that the term is justice, just pisses me off to no one. Because but remember,
3: there's, no, there's no editorializing. This I don't care. This is just what people I don't care what for. it is.
2: But realistically, you can say all you want, that it's you know an algorithm that's doing it and people just searching for shit. But people are searching for it because they think they need to look for it. Or yeah. they don't know what it is at this point. Yeah. And it's never in the sense of justice in the broader term. It's justice in social justice and racial justice and gender justice and everything else that comes along with this. This identity... Attachment. this, you know, pilot fish that's stuck on the, the, the shark of actual justice just bugs the this shit out of, of me. The shark of actual justice? Yeah. Oh, Nick, that is good stuff.
3: <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick McGuire, my friends, that was, that was awesome.
4: <laughs> I love it. No. Phil, Phil, what's your course, word? Another, another interpretation, if this might make you feel better, no, Nick, it doesn't. is that <laughs> it's clear that the other words on the list are words that people heard and didn't know what it meant. Yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> so they're looking up
4: Lodestar and feckless and, you know, like, what, what the hell? What do we mean when we talk about nationalism? So maybe it's not that they're all, you know,
2: they uh, just didn't know what justice meant.
0: Yeah.
4: It, hey, that's the alternative. Alternative explanation is that people are stupid in a different way. Than you than might have to.
2: made the situation worse, Phil. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, what's your word of twenty eighteen?
4: Uh, I'll be all professorial, I guess. And my, my students would say that this has been my word of 2017 and 2016 and 2015, <laughs> too. But it feels big this year. Um, I, I would say norms, right? Because we've talked a lot yeah. about the about political norms and about how you've seen that in the last year that... There are the the written rules, the actual laws that are in place, but so much of the way our system operates and and the way our democracy works is based on these sort of unspoken Mm. kind of everybody just, this is how it works. And we all understand it and we believe in it and that's how it goes. And we see how those are quickly eroded. I I feel very like nerdy for having said that, but that's what I'm sticking with. (laughs) That's good. I (laughs) like it.
1: Tom, what's your I'm going to go you one nerdy even more. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Regarding Merriam-Webster as the grade school version of Words of the Year, I went to the Oxford. Ooh. And it turns out their word of the year really resonated with me, and it was toxic. Oh, oh that's a good that's one. Good. Uh, oh, I want to change my word. Almost a 50% word. increase in lookup rate. And, of course, they find all of the cognate words that it was attached to. <clears throat> Miriam didn't do us all of yeah. that uh, favor. But, boy, I, I thought to myself about all the polls I've read lately about Americans are angry. Reuters did one recently where they said Americans are seething, which is a I mean, it's a great word relative to anger. And I thought, how many contacts am I in that feel toxic right mm-hmm. now? And how many do I observe? So that's my word. I, I think there's too many and toxicity is rampant. Oh,
3: oh, that's good. Let me just say I'm grateful for this conversation, <laughs> but that's not my word of 2018. Grateful? <laughs> yes. No, my word is. Muttonhead. <laughs> Let me define muttonhead for you: stupid or clueless, general idiot, hated by the population, unwholesome. The people in this room. <laughs> yes. No. I, I. You know. I. I don't know what to say. I, I am. I'm pulled in by Phil, who who talks about norms. Uh. I. You know. I feel like it, this year was a lot of great conversation but I also felt I think toxic is probably a better choice I felt a lot of that conversation was wasted conversation I mean it was good conversation but there were other issues that we should be talking about and I felt like this was a entertaining and fun Sort of diversion, but but
2: there's other things we should be dealing with. So yes, I yeah. agree. Most of the conversations we have on this podcast have been completely useless. <laughs> <laughs> you,
4: the toxic norms created by you mutton heads. That's like <laughs> it. Uh, oh, this is good. Geez. Well
2: played. This, this is. I,
3: I, I, every week, I enjoy this. This is great.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh my god. All right, to you, Nick. Oh God, I just—you <laughs> got to wrap it up. God, toxic was such a good one, and mm-hmm. I thought about that so much. If there was one. I'm not a fan of banning words that needs to be banned, in in the context that most people use them. Um. Yeah, what do we talk about? Oh, I'm doing plugs because we're yeah. done with things. Yeah. Um. Yeah, if you guys like the podcast, have uh, questions, comments. Uh, I don't really care about concerns, so don't leave those. <laughs> um yeah beer suggestions anything like that follow us on twitter at barstool paul facebook at barstool politics uh beers that we try find on untapped uh on ios and android uh we're barstool politics on there so look for our beer reviews the podcast itunes soundcloud stitcher google play music most major podcasting platforms uh like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast check out predict it uh when you have a second predict it is a uh Pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, lots of fun. Um, we use it all the time. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners, if you open up an uh, account, um, Predict It will um, match uh, up to a uh, up to $20. Wow, I am done talking today. Uh, $20 uh, for, uh, the, on your first deposit. So open up a $20 account, uh, Predict It will match $20. Uh, use the promo link, org slash promo slash BarstoolPaul20, uh, and get uh, your free money up to $40. Use on Predicted. Free money, Nick. Free money is can't, always a good thing. Can't beat it with a stick. Nope. <laughs> uh, Tom, thanks again for being here. Yes, always fun.
1: I'm with Bill. It's just the greatest conversation.
2: Thank you. Yep. <laughs> um, we're we're going to take next week off, right? I think for so. For the holiday. For the holidays. Yeah. 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 We can say it. It's Christmas time. That's what we're going to do. Happy holidays, Nick. Yeah, it's Christmas.
1: You've excessively entangled us in (laughs) a non-secular purpose.
2: That's my job here.
0: Uh, Cheers.
2: (laughs) See you later, guys.